patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone and welcome to episode 101 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host Sherman Taloski. Thank you all so much for joining me for this episode, the solo episode about a topic that is more of a policy proposal, but just a, po- a proposal to entertain some ideas on uh, infrastructure, which is the main topic for today. Before we get to that, I, I'm really, really excited to begin our new podcast schedule starting August 1st, so it'll be the next episode, episode 102, with the second episode of every month being a solo episode, either a just standard solo episode or a Sacred Honor series episode. Really, really looking forward to creating more amazing content. We got some great guests lining up, uh, just a great way to not only adapt to the circumstances, but to deliver amazing content, more amazing content. Now, since episode 100, we've had some incredible reactions from listeners and guests and family, friends. Today, I'd like to share one of those sharings. It was submitted after the episode was due to be released, uh, but I'd like to include uh, some thoughts and some kind words from one of our former guests. Her name is Lucy Santora. You can check out her episode, episode 88, Jumping into the Arena of Ballot Boxing. Let's take a listen. Hey Sherman, it's Lucy Santora, and I just wanted to congratulate you on 100 episodes of the Friends and Fellow Citizens podcast. Thank you for having me on episode 88. It was such a blast recording with you and talking about voting and politics and my book, Ballot Boxing. Um, Sherman, you're a scholar and really a treasure hunter of history who uncovers connections to the past that embolden us for the future. So cheers to the next 100. I am so excited for the lessons and insights that you'll teach next. I'm so thankful for those kind words, and I'm just so humbled. Like I mentioned in episode 100, so humbled every single week to be able to share with all of you and to get to learn so much from all of our guests on Friends of Fellow Citizens. Now, we've all heard recently about the news regarding infrastructure agreements and disagreements, compromises and standoffs. Many people are looking forward to the new infrastructure projects or things that we need to build on, like 5G or new roads or bridges. And while those are incredibly important, what seems to be lacking in our society today is a vision to create a pipeline for engineers, builders, creators, technicians, and others to create a long-lasting infrastructure here in the United States. I've stemmed this from a case study in history, which I've mentioned way back in some of the early episodes of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I actually had a conversation with one of my first guests, Christian Pinheiro, and he mentioned someone whom I also admire too, who is former New York Governor DeWitt Clinton. DeWitt Clinton was governor of New York from 1817 to 1822, and again from 1825 to 1828. He is best known for being the governor 
when the Erie Canal was constructed. As some of you may know, before the Erie Canal, it just took forever and it took so much money to be able to ship all kinds of goods through from the East Coast into the Midwest. And when Clinton came up with this idea, I mean, he wasn't the first one to come up with it, but as governor, you know, he certainly wanted to claim some credit for it, and he was very much egged on by the uh, people who really backed a canal to uh, ship goods from the East Coast to the Midwest. When he, but when he really envisioned this idea, one has to understand that there was so much opposition in New York, especially from New York City. But with a lot of clever lobbying, with a lot of great connections, including with the with then he, he was just in the New York legislature, but eventually became president. He worked with Martin Van Buren. Uh, DeWitt Clinton really understood the framework and the workings of New York politics. And through a lot, a lot of hard work, he was finally able to secure the Erie Canal, and the construction started in 1817, and it would be completed in 1825. Now, aside from the many challenges that the Erie Canal had to face itself, them being the, so much longer than the previous canals that were built in history, not to mention the elevation issues that came along with it, rather, it was Governor Clinton's vision that infrastructure was a way for America to really make her stance and to create these many, many successes that could bring people together in the nation, but also deliver economic growth and prosperity and get people to participate in civic life. This quote is often credited with Governor Clinton. It says, quote, The case is beyond dispute. Delays are the refuge of weak minds. And to procrastinate on this occasion is to show a culpable inattention to the bounties of nature, a total insensibility to the blessings of providence, and an inexcusable neglect of the interests of society. The overflowing blessings from this great fountain of public good and national abundance will be as extensive as our country and as durable as time. It remains for a free state to create a new era in history and to erect work more stupendous, more magnificent, and more beneficial than it has hitherto been achieved by the human race. Unquote. It's just a great way to market the Erie Canal as a, a, a huge infrastructure feat, and it was. It really revolutionized trade in America, but I think it went a little bit deeper, and as this article from the New York Almanac says... The Erie Canal's creation and functionality was the result of a very democratic process. It faced a lot of hurdles. It wasn't just, oh, Erie Canal is so great, let's just do it. It faced a lot of hurdles, but because of the will of the people, especially in in the rural parts of New York State, because of all the lobbying work that was being done and all, all that civic participation for you know, to all the town halls, all the meetings, all the rallies and, and whatnot that helped fuel that movement to finally create an ear canal after decades of inaction. This really was a great test to the American experiment. Could these states, even under a, a bigger federal government than under the Articles of Confederation, could these states implement their own visions 
for for the econ- for the economy of their of the respective states, but also for the national interest too. Governor Clinton was one of the earliest pioneers of American infrastructure. Think about all the amazing wonders of American infrastructure that we use so often today: the Golden Gate Bridge, Hoover Dam, the Erie Canal, even smaller scale infrastructure like the Pony Express even though it lasts only a few years, the telegram, the telephone, inventions of transformers. I mean, so many different examples, both common and the unique, that really define what American life is. My proposal is to create an infrastructure national guard that could serve not only the states, but also for the national interest too. Now, some people might argue that we already have something like this when it comes to a national coalition of engineers and of professionals who can build this infrastructure. And that classic example might be the Army Corps of Engineers. And I think the Army Corps of Engineers can absolutely play a huge role in shaping the vision for American infrastructure policy. The Corps of Engineers was really started when the French and the Americans were teaming up to uh, to build essentially an infrastructure for the siege at Yorktown and at other places around the war. I mean, you need to have a group of people who understood how to, you know, help transport the military and help with all these little details of of really conducting invasions or defending a fort and whatnot. And this actually was revived, this idea of having a Corps of Engineers was revived by George Washington. Ultimately, Thomas Jefferson signed a law that stated that he wanted to have a a group of engineers based in West Point that really helped with the promotion of infrastructure. And not really just infrastructure, but the main purpose was really to have expert engineers remain loyal to the American military because he was afraid that the U.S. would have to depend on uh, foreign engineers to be able to sustain itself. And you know, a lot has changed since then, but you know, that was really the the key core element, which was to support a kind of military based uh, vision for infrastructure. And while it is absolutely critical that we need to have that's that sort of element within our military. But there needs to be something broader that covers the civilian elements to it. Now, it's true that when it comes to projects all around the country, there needs to be approvals from the Corps of Engineers and whatnot. But one of the big challenges that we're facing, and really any government is facing, is just sheer bureaucracy. Now, bureaucracy is nothing new. DC is certainly no stranger to that. However, when when we're talking about a huge country here with 50 states plus DC and the five territories, I don't believe that it is really within the capacity for the federal government to be able to dictate what projects have to occur in each of these 50 states. And it certainly wouldn't even work in this the system that we're in right now. Every single state uh, has members of Congress and legislators and governors who lobby to get funding from the federal government. And I, and I think that's going to remain the case. However, I've noticed that a lot of states probably also want to have a bigger pipeline so they can attract people to come to their state temporarily or permanently to work on 
the civil projects. With such a deficit of workers, I mean, everyone from carpenters and contractors to cybersecurity professionals, there just really isn't a cohesive strategy to be able to recruit enough people to join the engineering fields and also really to have that vision, again, that political will and vision for infrastructure in every single state and locality. On a recent road trip from California to Kansas, I noticed that as we were driving on some of these roads, we were cutting through all these states, the roads differed so much in my experience. We would be driving so smoothly in a state like Nevada, which has great roads, by the way, just on a lot of metrics out there. And then we would drive through parts of Utah or Wyoming, even Nebraska, and I don't, I'm not familiar specifically with the, the state legislators and what their priorities were on roads, but I can definitely tell you that the road quality really, really was not pleasant on a lot of the, the stretches of I-80. Imagine how a trucker feels when they drive on a stretch of I-80 or any other interstate or road, and they know that it's bumpy. It's just, it's just an unpleasant feeling that you have to get to to see that that there isn't much care on this stretch of I-80. Now, this is not to say that an idea for a, a state-run response for infrastructure or a statewide pipeline would solve every single issue with regards to roads. But the point is, I, th- I think every single state wants to have some kind of ability to not only politically benefit from being able to fix roads, you know, a very, very tangible element of civic life to be able to fix a road or fix a pothole is something that people every single day, no matter what what party you are, can feel when they're driving on it. But I also think it really delivers a lot of vitality and a lot of, of, of independence and this element, this kind of home rule element for every state to be able to control more of their destiny on how uh, they can create and build infrastructure. My my area of ideas around a National Guard sort of structure for infrastructure, I guess you'd call it InfraGuard or whatever nickname could be out there for infrastructure National Guard, but it'd be a way for governors to be able to, or I should say state governments, to be able to have their own programs on recruiting people within their state to join a civic track of engineering and of cybersecurity. Students who show a keen interest in supporting their state, in having a stable career, people who show promise in engineering and who might want to be on this civic track for a while, they maybe go on to the private sector or stay in state government, can participate in this Infrastructure National Guard program. What this does is that it creates a whole pipeline, a whole new system for people to be able to participate and to be able to learn skills on the job. Uh, This program can incorporate multiple different contractors and companies that wish to work with the state government on uh, creating that next generation of civil engineers and of cybersecurity professionals. Uh, These people can work for the state government or for this these infrastructure projects for X number of years or however long a project can be. 
And as part of that, what it does is that it guarantees that certain people can get that training and get that education early on, not having to wait until they finish college or even go to college at all if they want to. But it allows for some kind of flexibility on infrastructure projects. The state government can say, we want to focus on these particular um, skill sets or we want to focus on these particular projects. And they can maybe get that pipeline, recruit those young students from college or from high school, get them that training. They can work on these projects, gain that work experience. And if they want to stay in that kind of civil service track or if they want to go in the private sector, that's going to create an unintended benefit, largely speaking, for for those who want to be part of that workforce, to be part of that new generation of civil engineering and of infrastructure. This is also great for political leadership because with this pipeline, they can whoever is in office, um, you know, while it's obviously the civil engineering part shouldn't be partisan at all. However, each governor or each state legislature can help map out their vision and pitch out to the voters on what they what they want to do to outline their projects. And obviously, this can still go alongside the standard lobbying that goes uh, that's been going on for a long, long time, probably since the Erie Canal. This lobbying of you know getting federal funding, federal support that's still that's not going to change much. But what changes is that prioritization of infrastructure at the heart of state priorities that can uh, that can not only provide political will and political capital but can provide the capital to drive engineering and drive infrastructure development in states all across the country. Other elements that can be added include this National Guard element of a a declaration of emergency, where if there is, say, an outage, like a major power outage of some kind, God forbid, that infrastructure National Guard can be activated to get all the engineers, getting all those people to respond to that, getting cybersecurity professionals to see if it's been hacked, to evaluate existing infrastructure facilities to see how resilient they are to hacking and to maybe theft, unfortunately, which is unfortunately what's happening in a lot of big cities nowadays. There's also there's an element going back to the cyber element. If there were incentives, including scholarships, including Ways for people to uh, to stay in the civil service uh, for X number of years to at least offer that option uh, that can help with some retention when it comes to cybersecurity. The partnerships, the public-private partnerships that can work with private companies being very, very interested in getting workers, but they want they don't just want any workers. They want trained professionals. They want people with experience. They want people to have some kind of stability. Uh, There's always a saying that it's better to actually go in government first and then a private sector than the other way around because of that trust factor, that credibility factor. All these things are just some ideas to entertain. And what this really does, I think the central part of it is, is that we can make these programs not only central with the engineering, the technical side, but we can maybe instill a culture of appreciation and the learning of America's infrastructure history. Imagine what a New York-based pipeline could do when they speak, when they teach their students or the candidates about the amazing feats of the Erie Canal. Translating that into the ability for 
engineers and for people who are te more technical people to be able to serve their states and to serve their country in huge, huge ways. That, I think, is really not only building on DeWitt Clinton's vision and maybe what the founders envisioned for the purpose of establishing commerce and of delegating that responsibility to the federal government, but also to states, it also really revitalizes a, a national unity component. While these ideas would obviously have to take quite a bit of time to put it from words and thoughts into actual text and legislation and policy, but I hope that there will be some kind of appetite in the future for citizens across the country in their respective states to be able to support this kind of idea of not only serving for a state's national a state's interests, but also serving for the national interests of American critical infrastructure and combining that with civic participation. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out the link down in the show notes below to get your friends and fellow citizens mug if you haven't already. Let me know what you think of some of these ideas as well. Be sure to use the contact form also on the website shermantalowski.com. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.